Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. It's, a, it's actually worse than that. Um, we showed this in business law. Um, there's a social media company or research company that when you apply for a job, they will seek out all your social media accounts and they will generate a report based on all kinds of inputs that you've done, whether if you've commented on something, if you've liked something. Uh, and let me show you exactly what I'm talking about. The name of the company is FAMA, F-A-M-A. And when you see this stuff, it's going to blow your mind. And the way I found out about it, no, um, I, was, I was on Twitter, and somebody posted, I just got this report from FAMA about my social media activity. And the report was about 250 pages. It was a stack of papers that big. And when you look at it, um, they will, like, rate each individual post. Some of them, if it's got something, um, like, if, it, if it's just a generic post that doesn't have anything worthy of flagging, uh, they'll just ignore it. But if it's a flaggable post, be it good or bad, when they flag it, they'll categorize it, and then they'll tell why it's good or bad. And so, like, if you, let's say that, you, you know, during the daytime, you're a very nice person. Everybody likes to get along with you. But then you go home at night and rage tweet. And you go home and, like, uh, like things from, like, hate groups or something like that. Uh, then what happens is if you ever have to go through a system like this, which is going to be a very normal thing, I think, in the next five or ten years, this will be. They've already done, I read, I read up on the website, they've already done, like, 17 million uh, profile reviews. So let me show you what the pictures of the report looks like. And so, I didn't do a report, but I believe it's the the organization that's doing the hiring. They will contract FAMA. And so, like, here's a here's a picture of a page. And I apologize if there's anything offensive up here, but the reason I show it. So, like, you can see there's some curse words in this lower uh, tweet. And they flagged it as bad because of language. They liked it. They didn't even post that. The user did not write this. They just liked it. So you liked a tweet that had offensive language in it. And so now that lowers your pharma score. Yeah. At the very top, I don't know. I guess it's misogyny and sexism uh, is this video. It was not posted by the user, but it was liked by the user that you like something with misogyny and bigotry and sexism in it. And so, yeah, um, yeah, just really, really crazy. So there's some other ones. Uh, let's see if I can find. Yeah, here's another one. So all these are bad, too. This was bad because of language. Um, check out the top two, though. References to alcohol were made. And because the user who did not write the post liked the tweet with references to alcohol, it was flagged as bad. So imagine you apply for a job, and then you get a, they say, well, okay, part of our condition for employment is that you just give us your social media 
uh, handles, whatever they may be. You don't have to give us your login. Just tell us what your ats are for Instagram, for Twitter. And what they do, yeah, they'll give it to this company. Here's, you know, Derek's four social media profiles. They plug in those profiles, and then they hit, they, they enter it into their algorithmic software, and it'll spit out a report after it analyzes your histories. Pretty crazy, right? Yeah. No, they don't hack into your account. They just look at your publicly available information. Yeah. What's that? If it's private, yeah, they probably can't see it. Yeah. Right. Sure, sure. Every, I think everybody has. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I know. I know. Right. There's. I mean, I think every body that uses social media has liked something that was could be construed as offensive to somebody right I mean but that doesn't mean that you're a sexist or a bigot or a racist or anything like that I mean like uh, it's just it is various comedy is subjective you know I mean so I mean yeah so I just think that this is very when you start talking about social media and I heard I heard you mention you know companies kind of looking through your stuff outside of this though yes ma'am Well, see, the thing is, is that all this is publicly available information. So um, if it's publicly available, there's no nothing preventing them from doing this type of check on you to see what you're really like. And at the end of, the, at the end of this thing, this report will spit out a score that will tell you what your final score is. How likely are you to be a good or bad influence in the workplace? And that, along with your resume, letter recommendation, cover letter, interview all that is crunched together into a decision on whether to go forward or, or not with you so yeah oh absolutely absolutely right there's a movie on uh amazon prime i watched it maybe probably two years ago now it's called the circle with tom hanks in it yeah and the the premise was if we put up cameras in every location around the earth and we can see everything that's going on, we can prevent crime and protect people. But everybody did it except for the watchers. And then when you finally let to have the cameras on them, they realize, oh, we're actually the scoundrels. We're the bad guys. Yeah. And they knew that we're in trouble, right? Same, same type of thing. I mean, every, nobody, like, when I talk to people in HR and they're going through and doing all these metrics, stuff like this, they also have probably things in their social media history that may or may not be, you know, good. Um, so I actually deleted Facebook off my phone, not for this reason. I just think that, you know, for me personally, there's a lot of negativity on Facebook. There's a lot of fake news and there's a lot of uh, artificial reality, you know, because when you look at social media, you're not witnessing reality as it exists. You're witnessing a version of reality, whatever people choose to show you. And so I just said, you know, Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right. I know. I know. False advertising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well.
the dog had passed away. Yeah. And it got me to thinking, you know, there's so much Photoshop out there, so much editing that you can do. How much is real and how much isn't? Oh, well, if it's on, if it's on like a social media profile, like, or, I mean, a lot of that stuff is edited. So, I mean, so, I mean, uh, yeah, I would say like a high number. Yeah. Yeah. And even, even advertising though, like, I mean, uh, I mean, like Facebook is on the record now for saying that, you know, we're, we're, they are advertised funded. That's how they make their money. And so it's in their best interest to not be restrictive on what advertisers do and say, unless it's, you know, hate speech or something. But, uh, basically advertisers can manipulate and, and kind of misrepresent things and frankly lie and Facebook you know they're thinking well they may do those things but guess what they stroke us a check every month you know so we have a vested interest in not being restrictive on that so um, but interesting talking points what else is going on what you got for me what you got what you got uh, you know we're out tomorrow right that's awesome yeah Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. I like your um, well. Yesterday in class, and then your email. I, I like your cheering us on. You're oh no! On, you start to feel it at the halfway point. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned that. In class, thank you for bringing it up. I mentioned in class yesterday that when you hit the midpoint of the semester, you really start to feel bogged down mm-hmm. because you've already basically everybody starts out a new semester in a sprint. You run at full speed as fast as you could go. <laughs> And you're excited. You know, it's exciting. New things. But then you realize that it's actually not a sprint. It's a marathon that you're in. And so you got to slow down. And, yeah. But you've already burned all this energy in the beginning of the semester. And so now it's like, I just got to make it. But let me tell you what I told my class yesterday. Is if we can just make it to April 10th. That's Good Friday, which is about a month from now. If you can make it to Good Friday, uh, the rest of the semester will take care of itself. Because after, after that, you have a week off. Time to refresh, regroup, come back for about three weeks, roughly two or three weeks, and you'll finish out. So well, that's better than last spring when we were out for a week, came back for one week, and then we were done. Yeah, yeah, I remember that, and yeah, we did that last year. It was like spring break was real late in April, yeah. and after it ended, we had one week left basically. So yeah, yeah so I, was in class. <laughs> I like it better this way this time though because. Uh, you know, it kind of breaks it up a little bit better. So it gives you time to get things done and get to that resting point sooner. What's up? And I appreciate those encouraging words because when I read it, you know, it just Oh, I appreciate that. Good feedback. Thank you, ma'am. Well, um, anything else going on? What else is new and exciting? Anybody? Anybody got anything for me? How are you, ma'am? You doing good? Yeah, you hanging in there? Okay, good. Uh, which which Wake County case? Oh, the Raleigh, the Corona. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, we'll talk about this every week probably. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be with us a while. And I, I, I read about it every day. I watch the news on it every day. And, I mean, it's a legit concern. And we, we've, we escalated here a little bit by printing out um, proper hand washing and recommendations and stuff in the bathrooms. And talking about specifically coronavirus, yes. Um, we have a question from a lot of doctors that come through. Right. And one of them says, well, we hear all the way through, and they're like, people 
Yeah, sure. I've heard rumors. Yeah. I've heard rumors. Yeah. So, well, like I'm, I, I'm like where I started last week talking about it with you guys. I'm a little bit more concerned this week, but still not in panic mode. Um, just make sure you're doing the smart things, washing your hands and sanitizing frequently. I'll get you one second and getting some food supplies like you would prepare for a hurricane. Uh, you you want to have that stuff. I've already spent probably $250 on food prep just to have. And I'll tell you some of the easy things you can get. Raymond noodles. You can get a case of 12 for three bucks, three bucks. And, and in a pinch, those things go a long way. I know it's not, it's not fine cuisine, but um, canned soup, obviously. Crackers have a long shelf life. Oatmeal has a long shelf life. Uh, those are the types of things I've been buying. And other canned goods like... Um, Pineapple and what else did I buy? Uh, SpaghettiOs for my kids and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, and it's a legit concern. But here's some of the good news is that, number one, we're probably in the best place in the world to go through something like this from a access standpoint because we have access to health care. Number two, um, I believe if there was a case identified in a space – that that space would close instantly, just like we've seen. There was a case up north, I think, uh, where they found, like a parent had it, and they closed the entire school to disinfect it and just watch yep. it. Yep. So it's good that people are willing to just jump on it. And So I think if something did happen locally here, they would instantly close the school. And so be prepared for that if it does happen. We'll still maintain, though. We'll just make it work, you know, remotely. I'll probably be doing videos. Hey, guys, it's me, you know, so, yeah, so. Hang in there, you know. But, yeah, yes, sir, you had something to say. Uh, I saw a statistic where it was like uh, 94% of people who contract the virus there didn't charge. So, I mean, that's a, that's a big number considering all the cases. Right. And, I mean, 6% died from it, but they all had pre-existing medical conditions. Yeah, so I've seen a lot of numbers, too. The math I did this past weekend was based on 2% uh, mortality. Then this week it was upgraded to 3.4% mortality. But if you look at the current stats, it's 6% mortality, which is, uh, at like, unbelievably high. I mean, so, because uh, if it spreads, they say it spreads a um, little less than flu now is what I've heard. But if let's just do for, for talking points, if it spreads comparable to flu, uh, in the past 10 years, a high number for flu deaths in the United States was 61,000. Um, but if the mortality is... 20, 30 times higher, you extrapolate, just out of 20X, you're looking at 2.1 million people in the United States alone, ends up being 27 million worldwide. So, but a tenth of that would be 122,000 uh, in the United States deaths and 2.7 million people worldwide. So even like on a conservative tenth of what flu deaths are, that's still a significant number of people, you know. So, so that's why it's such a concern is that you know, we re realize that this is going to be with us. And until like probably 12, 18 months before we can get a vaccine that would be viable in order to deal with it appropriately. So, yeah, but one problem that is I've seen over and over again is the testing. We, we need to get serious. And what Korea is doing, South Korea is doing, is they're doing uh, mobile testing. So you can drive through 
roll down your window, they test you, so you don't have to go wait in the hospital and spread contagion. They test, if you're symptomatic, you drive through, they test you, then they'll call you in a couple hours and tell you your results. And so that way you're not mixing with people. So I said, we need to get on that, you know. So, yeah, we, we need to get on that. So, But in any case, we'll continue to talk about it. We'll continue to monitor it. Um, best advice I can give you, follow the sanitation protocols, hand washing, sanitizing. Um, <laughs> try not to touch other people. Be wary of the contact surface. I mean, no, no disrespect. Oh, I know. Yeah, but like shaking hands, just be real. Just like, you know, and I told my dad last night, I'll take the hit and say I've been unwell and I don't want to, I don't want to risk that. And where I've had sickness in my house, and that's a true statement. So you're just being real with people. And, um, but do prep food-wise a little bit. Just get you some basics. You don't have to spend a lot of money. I bet with 20 or 30 bucks, you could get enough for at least a, a few days, you know, to have something but do what you feel is appropriate. But I think some food prep is smart, regardless of any situation. I mean, because uh, you never know when we're going to have a financial disaster, a natural disaster, or otherwise. So um, I'm going to shift into uh, chapter eight. If you think of something else you want to talk about, just let me know. Just jump in there. But we started out on Tuesday talking about strategic analysis, things like SWOT analysis, and the projector wasn't working, but I think we did okay. Um, I'm not going to go over the learning outcomes again. I did that on Tuesday. We did talk about these five things or these five elements, strategic analysis, um, looking at these different aspects of the competitive environment. What, what do we do well? What can we improve on? What does the environments offer us as far as opportunities and threats? Environmental scanning is where we look around internally and externally trying to determine those things. The competitive advantage is really crucial. What makes us special? Um, I talked about this in the other class I teach on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. There was a book by a guy named Seth Godin, Purple Cow. Anybody heard about this? I should have brought it here and showed you guys too. I need to, I need to, I need to start doing that. But um, in the book, he, makes, he tells a story in the very beginning about he and his children going through the countryside and seeing all these brown cows. And at first the kids were like, look, there's a cow. But after 10 miles of seeing brown cows, they all blended together and they weren't special anymore. You know, I was like, eh, there's another cow. But he said if they kept going and saw a purple cow, one that was, you know, just standing out there in nature, a purple-looking cow, that would have blew their mind. It would have been what he calls remarkable, something worth talking about. And so that's what we're getting to with competitive advantage. And you can apply this to you as an individual. What makes you remarkable? What makes you special? If you're going to apply for a job and 200 people are applying, what makes it that they pick you over anybody else? So what, what makes you stand out? And so that's the kind of thing you need to be focused on, what makes you remarkable. Um, so we look at external and internal factors. And once again, you could do it from a company standpoint. You could do it from an, inter from an individual standpoint. What, makes, what are my strengths and weaknesses? What are my opportunities and threats? And so, in fact, that's actually really cool. I need to do that. I hadn't done a self-swat that I can think of, so I might do that. That'll be, that'll be my, after my afternoon recreation. So there we go. Do a self-swat. That's a good idea. So, um, so this is the breakdown of SWAT actually uh, taken from the book. And you can see the inside the firm, outside the firm. I drew it as a quadrant on the board on uh, Tuesday. But we talked about these different things. Uh, and, how we, and this is not a uh, totally inclusive list. There's other things that could be strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. 
I'll say that if you don't learn anything else in business school, learn this. Because if you can talk about SWOT analysis, it'll make you sound like a like an expert, you know, even if you're not. I mean, really. Seriously. Like, you say, well, what would you learn in business school? Well, I can help you do a SWOT analysis to determine what your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats are. And people that have never been to business school will be like, wow, that's awesome. You know, and so, in fact, when I interviewed Ralph Legrand, uh, we talked about, you know, he, he was a sole proprietor or entrepreneur. And we were trying to identify what his, you know, what he was telling me why he valued education because he came to Wayne to earn a certificate. And he saw stuff, even as an entrepreneur in the field doing, you know, running a business, he saw and learned stuff in, at Wayne that he just never knew about. SWOT analysis was one of them. So it's a good thing. Um, I'm not going to go through all this because we've, we've talked about it, but um, what was the company we looked at? Amazon? Amazon. We, we looked at strengths, weaknesses. You can apply this to any individual, any organization, any corporation, anything. You can, you can sit down and you can make it as detailed as you want it. You can uh, really spend time going through the motions and identifying, uh, you know, if, like, for example, if a strength is um, that you have financial assets, you know, your, your, your company has financial assets. So then under each one, you can go under and say cash in the bank. I've got this much cash in the bank and then bonds. And then, you know, I've got treasuries or I've got equity in these companies. And so you can list those and really get into the details. And like if you've got equity companies, you can subcategorize that and list ownership of each company and how much that's worth. So you can really get as detailed as you want to with it. There was a time I was at University of Mount Olive and we had a complete campus SWAT where we all came together in a cafeteria, a big, big place, and they broke us into groups of six or eight. And we sat at the table and we all talked about what are the University of Mount Olive's strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And we all drew it out and at the end, they took all our big papers and put them up on the stage, and they tried to circle themes that they saw from different tables. And that was really effective because it identified, you know, these different themes that are standing out, you know, of what makes us remarkable. And so questions about SWAT so far? Okay. So we talked about internal and external environment. Let's, let's get a little bit deeper on this. Um, the internal environment are things within your four walls, your people, your processes, the assets you have, the liabilities you have. These are, these are internal things that, that you have to deal with. The micro environment is the things right around your periphery that you deal with on a daily and weekly basis, your competitors, your customers, your suppliers, your intermediaries, um, people that you, know, you come into contact with. Then you have a macro environment that you may or may not interact with that much, depending on the type of business you do, but you are a part of it, whether you realize it or not. These are things like technology, laws, dem demographics, environment, sociocultural trends, the government, the economy, globalization. Like right now, we're going through a pretty big macro thing with the coronavirus, but also we're going through a macro thing with the impact to the financial markets. The market has been just crazy. If you if you follow the stock market, it's been just, it tanked about a week ago. And then this week it's bounced and then dropped and then bounced and then dropped. It's down about 850 points last time I looked this morning. And the reason why that matters is because the stock market feeds liquidity to businesses to allow them to grow, to use for 
products and services in order to, to do business. When we pull that liquidity back and we cash out, um, it creates credit crunches. It creates situations where weaker businesses can't fund their day-to-day -day operations in some cases. I mean, it, it could get to that. It's not there yet. Um, but it could create cascading effects, you know, where um, let's say you're a small manufacturer and you've got 300 employees, which is, you know, considered it's large, but it's not like, you know, 20,000 employees. And, you know, there's something happens where, you know, maybe you can't have access to cash and it just creates a situation where you have to start making some really hard decisions about what's, are you going to lay off half your workers? I mean, things like this are, are things you have to consider. And that's no fault of your own. You could be doing great business. You know, you could, you could be uh, doing everything right, making right decisions, got good customers. But if your customers run into credit crunches or where they are limited on cash, they can't buy from you. And then uh, you run into a situation where markets are going down around you. I mean, no fault of your own, you find yourself in a situation where you're seriously considering laying off a chunk of your workforce or at some point potentially having to close your doors. And that's just, business is a lot like poker. Does anybody watch poker on TV? I don't, yeah, I like, well, I like watching. I, I mean, I, I like playing it, but I'm really bad at it. I, I mean, really, I mean, <laughs> like, I, I'm, I don't gamble, but when I, like, once a year I'll get together with, uh, we have a family reunion, and I'll play with my wife's cousins. And I'm thinking, here I go. I've been watching poker for years. I know what I'm doing. And then every time, I'm just like, I get just get stomped. So I never need to go to Vegas because I'll be like, I'm totally not, I don't know what I'm doing. So, But I like the mind game of poker and, and trying to, and the strategy that goes into it. Uh, but business is the same way, just like poker. You could do everything right in poker, make every right decision, and still lose. That's the nature of business. And so um, it's really, there's just so many variables that are outside of your control. Yeah. Um, Angie, Please. Uh, I noticed that the chess game. Yeah. Uh, since I've been in uh, business class, that, that chess just stands out, and I really want to know the logic. Okay. I'm glad you brought it up. So, um, when you're when you're uh, in a chess in a chess game, it's it's you basically are are making tactical strategy moves in order to advance your position. And so, like, you've got this opponent, which is all your obstacles that are barriers to success, whether they be cash flow, whether they be customer acquisition, whether they be competition, whether it be regulatory environment, all these things that stand in the way of you winning. And you have to strategically move your pieces, move your assets, your resources around in order to accomplish your goals. The reality, when you look at a chessboard, is that it's not equal. Uh, in reality, it's you versus your opponent versus all this other stuff in the periphery that, that you may or may not can account for. So it's really a stacked game against you. Another good example would be um, if you are opening a small business, you, it's kind of like a monopoly game. You know, the end, the, the end result of monopoly is one person owns everything. <laughs> And in a small business environment, you don't sit down at a monopoly game and everybody gets an equal distribution of cash to start out. It's you get $1, the banks have all the money. Am I wrong? Yeah. The banks have all the money. And then they say, okay, you play. And then if you don't, if you don't win, we get that dollar too. Right? Yeah. So that's how, that's how, and I'm not exaggerating. So like if you're starting a small business, you may have like ten or $20,000, maybe more. But the banks have billions of dollars, right? And so, like, 
you're you're really on the the low end of the totem pole, so to speak, as far as success. You know, I mean, so it really is something special if your business survives five plus years. You know, because you've 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 really kept your expenses down. You've controlled that. You've been able to create a revenue stream and create a, a profit. So that's why I mean, businesses is a tough it's tough to be in business. It really is. So. Um, I had a colleague at another institution when I worked at Mount Olive. They were a group of people from the humanities departments, and they didn't see value in studying business. And I try. I had to explain. And part of it is they're they've never studied it or thought about it or had to mess with it. But I said everything that you do in your life is a business. Think about that. Everything that you do, when you go to church, that's a business. It has to have revenue in order to keep the lights on, to, to pay for your minister, to, to pay for any services that the organization officer offers. This is a nonprofit college, but it's a business. If we didn't have revenue, we couldn't keep the lights on. Um, any Anything that you buy or transact or do, it's all business. Your home, you know, that's you've got to have revenue in order to run that business because uh, you've got a budget every month for food, for power, for internet, for the actual house itself. So uh, everything is a business and there's merit to studying business because I believe that after you study it for a while, you start to look at things differently. You start to look at the angle. When Purell made this, they made it for probably 13 cent, and I'm, that's probably a real number. And then they sell it to us for $3. And But there's a lot of middle people in between there to get it to us. Where was this made? Where do you think this was made? China. That was my guess, but let me see if that's true or not. This was made in the USA, okay. So it maybe costs more than 13 cent, but, but Coca-Cola, if you get a two liter of Coke, the most expensive part of that two liter is the bottle, not the soda inside. So, you know, when you make that, the, the real expense of Coke is getting it to the consumer, not the actual product. So the bottle might cost two or three cents. The soda inside might cost one or two cents. But the guy who has to put it on the truck and take it to you, he's getting paid, you know, $18 an hour, $20 an hour, whatever it may be. So, yes, ma'am. Um, right. I know. And people buy them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so you start to look at things differently. You know, you start to think about that and think about you as a consumer. Like, I was making a buying decision about something recently. I don't remember what it was. I was in Walmart, though, and I was looking at, if you look at the label on the shelf, it'll tell you the cost per unit and like, 33 cent versus 35 cent versus 38 cent. And so you can see how the cost per unit really is. You know, don't look at the price as much. I mean, that's important. But look at that cost per unit to help you make that buying decision because you can really see... Am I really getting that much of a better deal if I buy a bigger size? You know, so, and you do get a marginal discount buying bigger. So some of it is a much better deal. My kids like Takis. You like Takis, anybody? The hot, the hot chips. The little bag, the little bag about that big, is a dollar forty-eight. The big bag is two forty-eight. So like, why would you not get the big bag? You know, like, the problem is they keep the little Takis at the register and the big bag in the back. So if you forget to get the Takis. <laughs> you're stuck do I want to walk back there or do I want to just go and get them at the register right you know so. that brought up something I was thinking about my crop ditches uh huh you know I mean it was just me it doesn't cost me much for the cloth the material right I could spend less than four dollars just on 
time. But the time, yeah. yeah. And so my, my point was I'm scared to death to prostitute too high. Yeah. I, but, I understand that, yeah. But you look at these companies, I mean, they're doing it and they're making a profit. Yeah. I, I share that same concern. I had a guy contact me probably within the past six, probably six months ago, and he has a small business, and he needs some help with a website. And he said, and I started just talking to him about what he needed, and he said, well, we were talking about business in general, but then I said, well, I can help you with the website if you need help. So, oh, man, that'd be great if you could do it. You know, just, just let me know what you charge. I'm like, I don't know. I've never charged anybody to make a website, but he told me that the people, that the last people we talked to about doing one we're going to charge them $7,000. $7,000. And then cost three fifty a month to maintain it. So 7000 plus three fifty. So I got that knowledge in my head, and I'm thinking, I can't charge this guy, like, you know, like anything close to that, you know. And I'm, I'm like, debating. I'm actually asking people, what do you think is a fair rate, you know, for, to do this? And so I looked online, and, you know, I got all kinds of ideas for quotes. I ended up charging them 500 bucks, which is – it's a it's a low rate, but I, I didn't want to ask for like a thousand dollars or something because I would have felt bad about it. You got to feel good about it, you know. So, but he got a good website. I think he was happy with it, and so that's what ended up happening. So, um, let's talk about pestle tools real quick. So, uh, these are these pol um, political, economic, sociocultural, technological, and environmental environmental and legal factors. So these are things that managers can look at in the macro environments. And I, I like this graphic right here because it kind of can give, this would be something good to have in a manager's office, kind of hang on the wall, just to scan every once in a while. It's not something you have to look at every, every day, but these are things to think about. And it affects, I mean, even small business, you know, things, things to look at. Government policy under the P, uh, political stability, right? Like if you keep up with the world politics, like Venezuela right now is going through massive political instability, and it's just a dire situation down there. I talked to a guy who actually visited Venezuela in the past month. He went down there. He's a he's an independent journalist, and he said that I said, "How dire is it on a scale of one to ten? Ten being extremely dire, one being utopia." He says probably about a six. You know, it's 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 rough, but it, I mean, it's, but people make it work. You know, um, so political stability, corruption. Foreign trade policy, tax policy, labor law, trade restrictions, all these things, believe it or not, have been occurring in our economy. Like, we've had policy issues. We've had political stability or instability. We've had corruption. We've had foreign trade policy things popping up. We've had um, tax policy and labor laws and trade restrictions. All that stuff has come up within the past year or two. Like, um, remember the ban on China goods or the tariffs on China? goods that was something we're still working that out under the e economic growth exchange rates interest rates inflation rates depositable income employment rates um under the s or sociocultural population growth rates uh, rates age distribution career attitudes safety emphasis health consciousness lifestyle attitudes cultural barriers uh, under the t for technology technology incentives level of innovation automation R&D activity, technological change, and technological awareness. Under the environmental, things like the weather, the climate, environmental policies, environment, climate change, pressures from non-governmental organizations or NGOs. And then lastly, the legal, discrimination laws, antitrust laws, employment laws, 
consumer protection laws, copyright and patent laws, and health and health and safety laws. So there's a lot of macro factors that go into this, but it is important to uh, check this out from time to time. You don't have to think about it every day, but it's something to you know, something to keep on your radar as a manager. Yes, go ahead. Please. Yeah. So, you know, this is interesting because I'm older. So 30 years ago, there was a lot of belts. Right, yeah. And so, you know, I was never worried about my kids. I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I'll get the job, I'll get the job. And what happened, now, and I'm older, so I'm talking this about is, myself. This is a good conversation. Okay. But I'm like, dang, women are still not holding these jobs. You know, they're 60, 60 years old and they're still working. And 70 years old and they're still yeah. working. Yeah. You're not gonna be able to get those jobs because the five year old person is still in it and I don't think they're gonna get out of it Right. soon. Yeah. And we're living longer so we've got to and the, and it goes back to the whole living wage and all this. But it's just I, I feel so frustrated it is. Well, to speak to that, the baby boomer block is a twenty million block of adults and at some point in the next 10 years, a large exodus of that, those individuals are going to leave the workforce for health or just age, age reasons. You know, they're, they're, they're just physically can't work anymore, you know. And so um, there's going to be opportunities. And, yeah, so, but they're still working. Yeah, they're still, they're still working. And so, like, my dad's a boomer, and he is retired, and so is my mom, but he still works part-time. And so, like, but to your point, is that when people work longer because they're living longer, uh, it creates a stagnation in upward mobility. And we've, we're seeing it play out in real time. And so, but just like that stagnation is occurring because this block of individuals moving through time, they'll get to a point where uh, they move out, then there'll be a lot of gap. And, and so I think there's gonna be a, I don't wanna, I mean, I really believe there's gonna be a large, like, utopian, opportunity for younger people in the next 10 years where there's just a lot of upward mobility because these companies are continuing to grow our population grows and there's just gonna be a lot of people leaving the workplace that you know when i worked at university of Malaw, all the executives for the most part they were they were in their 60s and 70s i mean like uh, one of my former bosses was like she didn't retire until 75 and so yeah i mean that's and but but look at other things that are happening like they've pushed back social security age for people born before a certain or after a certain time. So now instead of getting full Social Security at 65, I have to wait till I'm 67, I think. So, yeah. So, and that's just a sociocultural and policy uh, trend. So I'm not going to talk about this second slide. I just put it in here because it was, uh, this one was, this one was not from the book, but I liked it better. This one is actually the one that you see in the book. And so let's talk about this. A Harvard strategy professor, Michael Porter, developed an, an analysis tool to evaluate a firm's microenvironment. This is Porter's Five Forces. It's a tool to examine the different microenvironmental groups in order to understand the impact each group has on a firm in an industry. So industry rivals at the center, threat of substitutes. What does that mean at the bottom? If you produce a product that's easily substitutable, meaning that you know, Derek wants to have a premium burger. He charges $10 for his hamburger. It's a good burger, 
But I'm thinking I could go to Wendy's and get a, a double stack for two bucks, you know. So, like, unless I've got extra disposable income, you know, I'm not going to be a customer first at Derek's probably. But in economic boom times, when people have extra disposable income, they may want that $10 burger. Oh, I've got a little extra money this month. I'll go get the $10 burger. That's great. Feel a little good about myself. I can afford that. But if there's any kind of substitutes and when economic times recess, it's like a double whammy to you because you have the substitutes, but you also have less disposable income. And so people are definitely going to go for the lower cost option. So... Um, and we have substitute products all around us. When you go to Walmart to buy peanut butter, some of you buy GIF, some of you buy Great Value. What's your peanut butter brand? Anybody have a specific brand? GIF. You like Peter Pan? GIF. I'm a GIF person. I got to get the GIF. I, I just something about the Great Value just doesn't work for me. What do you What do you like? GIF. Yes. Any Peter Pan fans in the house? You like Peter Pan? Okay. Good. 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 Does anybody ever try the organic with the oil that you have to stir it up? I know it's better for you. I just can't get. I just can't get there. Yeah. I mean, I know it's supposed to be better for you because it's not homogenized. It's like and the oil separates from the peanuts. But or, you know, I just, I just can't do it. Um, yeah. The buyer power, meaning, uh, like I just talked about, with what type of economy are we in? Are we in a time when people have disposable income? Are we in a time when the majority of households run out of income before they get to the next paycheck? So where, where are we at? Supplier power, um, <clears throat> how, how much resources do our suppliers have? Um, are we beholden to them or are they beholden to us? If we go away, is it going to destroy that company? Or are, if, if, if they go away, is it going to destroy us? That's what I'm talking about with supplier power. So, like, if I'm a big company and I call on this little supplier to give me some product, if I go away, that company might die because I'm their number one customer. But if they go away, I'm just going to find supply from somewhere else, right? Somebody that can give me a like product. And then the threat of new entrants, um, looking at how easy is it for somebody to get into this industry. If it's extremely easy, um, that's a problem for me. If anybody can open up a hamburger joint for low cost and just throw up a sign and go for it, that's a problem for me. You know, food truck industry, I love food. I've never actually eaten from a food truck outside of like a carnival. Do you guys do food trucks? No. Well, if I, like, I've heard good things about food, Scully's. They talk about how good Scully's is. But how easy for, is it? If I, wanna, if I see this as an opportunity, how easy is it for me to get into that? Pretty easy. I'd say for 10 to 20 grand, you could get a food truck and get your permits and you know, get a couple grills and make it happen. And so it's very easy. That's, that's, the, that's the downside of doing a food truck. The real barrier is will. Will somebody want to do a food truck you know it's not the cost it's the actual person wanting to do that so yeah so these are the porter five looking at um, the micro level or the micro environment also looking at resources and case capabilities resources are things that a firm has to work with such as equipment uh, facilities raw materials employees and cash capabilities are things a firm can do such as deliver good customer service or develop innovative products to create value. Yeah, value creation. So resources are things. Capabilities are things we do. Things versus things we do. Resources and capabilities. What does it mean to create value? What does that mean? Right. 
Right. I love it. Having a product or service that somebody else wants or needs, that's value. Because they look at it and they see some amount of value in it, whether it be a piece of bubble gum in a vending machine that, okay, I think that's worth a quarter. I'll put a quarter in there and go for that. Or, you know, some people look at a Lexus at $60,000 and see value in that and say, well, this is a status car. If I have that, people will look at me and think, oh, this person had $60,000 that they could commit to this vehicle. So people evaluate and value things differently. You know, they just do. I mean, like, when you're dealing with fine art, rich people, people in the 1% will say, you know, $200 million, no problem. Let's go for it. And then the next person will say $250 million, yes. I paid the highest price for this thing. Yay me. But I look at that and think, there's no way. I mean, what, you know, what is that? It's a painting. You know, like, give me a lithograph. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, really, if you had a exact duplicate copy of the painting, what intrinsically is different other than you knowing it's the original, I guess, you know? So, um, so we've got these two categories for value creation support activities and primary. Primary is about inbound logistics, operations, marketing and customer service. Support are the human resources, the information technology, research and development and the procurement. All that together leads to value creation, things we do to create those products and services that customers want and need. Um, and then obviously if we're doing our job right, the hoped, the, and the hopeful outcome is that we get to a profit all right so things about value um is it so valuable does the resource or capability generate value for the firm is it rare is the resource or capability rare amongst firms in the industry and so like if you want a specific hamburger it's a rare commodity you can only get it right here is there any type of food place that you go to that it's not maybe not a chain but you think i, I can only get this right here if I, I mean this is the one place on earth that I can get this one thing. I have one. My family goes to Myrtle Beach um, probably like once a year or every other year. And we'll spend like two nights, you know. We don't stay long. But there's this place we go to called Carolina Roadhouse. It's a really good restaurant. And they have, have you been there? Oh, man, what do you get when you get there? Yeah. Whatever's, whatever's delicious at the time, yeah. Uh, yeah whatever, whatever you're feeling at the time, I got you. Well, my wife gets this barbecue chicken sandwich, and you can only get that particular sandwich at that place. Their ribs and their salads, they, they serve these crescent rolls with, like, honey butter drizzled on it. Oh, it's, it's just, oh, man. Yes, that's good. Yes, ma'am. What you got? Two places. Hoagies? Uh huh. And I had it um, in New York. New York has the freshest grain rice. Right. Oh, man. I came at home, I could not eat chamakin. Right, yeah. Because I don't sell it. I know. Because I know what fresh rice tastes like. There's, there's a butcher shop in my hometown of Clinton that makes this sausage that you can only get in this one place on the entire planet. It's just, I mean, Jordan sausage. And I had a neighbor that had a small country store, and her name was Beth Holland. She made these cakes, uh, and she died several years ago, and she had this caramel cake. It was the only place on earth that you could get this exact caramel cake. I've, I've not tried anything like it since she died. And I was it's just like, now that's gone forever. And I'm like, ah, Beth, 
I miss you, Beth. And so, um, last two things real quick. Um, so, is it valuable? Does it offer value? Is it rare? Is it difficult to imitate? Um, and is it organized in a way to capture value? It doesn't matter if you have something valuable unless you can take advantage of it, if you can leverage it to capture revenue, to capture profit, right? So you've got to organize it in a way. And these are some examples. Starbucks, looking at, you know, its, it's, it's capabilities to making quality coffee, thousands of locations. It's got excellent staff, loyal customers, the paying above average wage. So these are all resources and capabilities that Starbucks has. I'm not going to go into this. This is in the book. And then lastly, just to talk about these last few things, strategy is the process of planning and implementing action that will lead to success in competition. Competitive advantage, we've already talked about that. Um, I talked about the Porter Five already, which are these five things that look at the microenvironments. Um, when pursuing a cost leadership strategy, a firm's offers customers its product or service at a lower price. Think Walmart when you see cost leadership. That's the most important thing is cost leadership. If we have to give up like cleanliness or we have to give up customer service, that's okay because low cost is what we're after. Differentiation strategy is the exact opposite of cost leadership. We want to be different. We want to be unique. We want to be special. Think niche organizations or niche businesses. When you go in there, it's different. Uh, and then lastly, Porter's third generic competitive strategy, focus, is a little different. A firm that focuses must still choose one of the other strategies to organize its activities. It will strive to lower cost or add value. And so that, ladies and gentlemen, is Chapter 8. Um, this will be due tomorrow night. Uh, we are off campus again as a reminder tomorrow. If you have any questions, please send me an email. Thank you for your time and attention, and I will see you guys next Tuesday. Yeah. Be safe. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending some time with me on the podcast. I hope you got something out of it and learned something that you can use in the world and share with others. If you did like it, please indicate so by liking, sharing, or going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Until next time, I wish you well.